You're listening to Teach Me Thy Statutes, a production of the Ephesus School Network. Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. The company of the angels was amazed. Hi, this is Father Aaron Warwick with Jason Everett, and you are listening to the Teach Me Thy Statutes podcast, episode number 116. Today's reading is from John chapter 6, verses 48 through 54. The Lord said to the Jews who believed in him, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Last week, we discussed the common debate of faith versus works, and this week provides us another opportunity to discuss another hotly debated topic, which, like last week, is very often misunderstood. And in today's reading, we heard Jesus' words regarding the Eucharist. And I'm hoping you can discuss this, Father, and bring clarity to what the Orthodox understanding of the Eucharist is and its significance. Yeah, certainly give it a shot. And as I said last week, so it applies also this week, namely that when you have these hot-button issues, people tend to take sides, they dig into their position, and the truth of the matter can often be lost. So I hope today that we can discuss this passage where Jesus talks about the Eucharist and we can get to the essence of what's going on and not be hampered by trying to win an argument. Yeah, that sounds good. So where do you think would be a good place to start? Well, I think the best place to start is with the passage itself that you just read. So we can talk about what Jesus is saying and to get to the meaning of that. And then hopefully after discussing the details of that, we can better understand the broader picture. Okay, so that sounds like a plan. So I guess to begin, we could start at the beginning of the passage. Jesus talks about the manna in the wilderness, which is an obvious reference to the book of Exodus and the Jews making their journey from Egypt to the promised land. But as Jesus notes, even though the manna kept the Israelites alive during that time in the wilderness, they ultimately ended up dying. Yeah, that's exactly what Jesus is referring to, Jason, the book of Exodus and the manna in the wilderness. And we should point out that this story of the Exodus is, of course, absolutely pivotal to the understanding of the rest of Scripture. So many aspects of Scripture refer back to this Exodus from Egypt to the Promised Land. And I think one of the most important things to note is the dynamic at play in this story. What do you mean by that, Father, that dynamic? At the core of the Exodus story, you have God freeing the Israelites or perhaps more precisely, we should say, the Hebrews, from the enslavement that they faced in Egypt. And on the surface, this of course sounds fantastic, people being freed from slavery. But it's not nearly as easy as it sounds. And the reason for that is that ultimately the Hebrews end up wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, a really long time. And the wilderness, we have to keep in mind, is a harsh place. It's a place where you don't have enough water and food to sustain people for that long. And that's why the Hebrews start to complain against God, correct? Uh, Because they don't have food and water, and so many of them, in frustration, say it was better to be living in enslavement to the Egyptians because at least they had their basic 
needs met. Yeah, that's right. And so you see from this story the common biblical theme of trusting in God, or perhaps we should say uh, that we see the constant biblical theme that people do not trust in God. So we tend to question God's plan and his providence for us as was happening in this story. So in the story then of the Exodus, God ends up providing water from a rock and he sends down what is referred to as manna from heaven to sustain the people. Well, one of the things that I find interesting about this story, Father, is that the manna can't be saved. It, it speaks to that issue of trust that you've just mentioned. The people have to trust that God will provide daily. Because if they try to store the manna until the next day, it becomes corrupt, uh, corrupted, no longer good to eat. Yeah, ex- except for the Sabbath. For the Sabbath, so that the people may observe the day of rest and not gather up the manna, they're given twofold the day before, and only then does the manna stay good for the next day also. So why is Jesus referring to the manna in his speech from which that we read today? Well, ultimately, the manna is not what protects and sustains the people in the wilderness long term. And so then what does sustain them? Well, the people are sustained by following God's law, by following his will, which of course is given to Moses on Sinai. And this is yet another overarching theme we see at play throughout Scripture, that our eternal protection comes not from physical food that we might receive, uh, not even from that physical food that God himself provided for the Hebrews in the wilderness. Our eternal protection comes from living by the will of God, by following his teaching. And we see that uh, at play also in the fact that God gives his law while the Hebrews are out in the middle of the wilderness, not when they enter into the promised land. And God does this. He gives them uh, that law in the wilderness so that there would be no confusion that the people were protected by the promised land, by its riches, and by the city walls that helped to keep out the invaders. No, the only eternal protection comes from living as God wills for us to live. It's a very helpful context. So how does this then relate to the rest of today's passage where Jesus talks about himself being the bread of life or uh, the living bread? Yeah, good question. So as I mentioned, these themes from Exodus appear throughout the Bible, and this is especially true of this theme of bread being linked to the teaching of God as it was in the wilderness in the Exodus story, because ultimately the reason God sustains the people in the wilderness with bread, with the manna, is so that he can then give them his teaching. Okay, so that makes sense. Uh, And and I remember in previous sermons, and maybe even on a, a podcast episode from the past, you mentioned the multiple passages in the New Testament that link bread with teaching, uh, passages like during Jesus' temptation, when he mentions that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. Yeah, it's a good example. It's also the time when Jesus tells his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. His disciples are confused, but Jesus clarifies, saying he didn't mean the literal bread, but their teaching. And of course, you know, ultimately, uh, we have the story of Jesus simultaneously feeding the 4,000 Uh, In one account, 5,000 at a separate time, but also he teaches them uh, during this time. So this idea of the bread slash manna being connected to the teaching is a consistent theme, a consistent motif throughout the Bible. So as it relates to today's passage from John 6, what is Jesus saying when he speaks about being the bread of life? So Jesus is referring primarily to his teaching. He's indicating that if one follows his teaching, then he will have eternal life. He will fall under that 
eternal protection, that true protection that I mentioned when we talked about the manna and the giving of God's law. And we can see the precedence is on the teaching. The bread, the physical food, is given to sustain the people, as I said, so that they may then hear the teaching and have the strength to go on, to continue in their daily lives, to continue out in the world, but to be different, to be changed by living out the teaching of Jesus Christ. So that all makes sense, and I think that the final thing that I want to understand then is how this all relates to the Eucharist, uh, to communion, and even more so how that is practiced historically in the church, as well as how or why some other churches today understand it differently than how we have practiced communion and understood the Eucharist historically. Yeah, so in the ancient world, and I would say even really not that long ago in our own country, and I suppose even in a, in a few households today, one of the most intimate settings for a family is the communal meal. So think about in the United States even, as I, as I mentioned, not that long ago, the family dinner was a big deal for, for many families. And in most homes, you'd have a family dinner each night, and perhaps on Sunday you'd have an even bigger meal, extended family uh, might be there. But some people uh, still keep this custom and tradition, even when many Americans have uh, busied themselves with other activities. But I think most of us can still picture this scenario of the family dinner. If nothing else, at least we can think about it at times like Thanksgiving and, and Christmas and so forth. But at these dinners, for perhaps you know, less formally in the U.S., but definitely much more formally in the Roman Empire of Jesus' time as well as in the Jewish custom of Jesus' time. During these meals, it was considered a time for an elder to teach. You know, sure, there was some general unofficial fellowship, but one of the main functions was for the elder to teach. This is one of the benefits of a family meal even to this day, you know, an opportunity to discuss the day for us to teach our children. And in any case, you have this natural setting that was part of Roman society, and Jesus and the Christians pick up on this, and you see it in the so-called Last Supper, and you see it in the way the earliest Christian community gathers together, and so there's this inseparable link between the physical bread and the physical wine and the teaching of Jesus being shared and expounded upon by the elder or elders of the community. That's uh, fascinating, Father. Thank you for sharing that. The, uh, the origins of communion and uh, what we now call the Eucharist, especially as it relates to the Roman and the Jewish customs of the time. Uh, but I'm wondering how we got to the point today where some Christians confess communion to be the body and blood of Christ, and then others understand this is more symbolic, as many Christians today don't even offer Holy Communion each Sunday. Yeah, again, like we mentioned at the beginning, you get people pushing a certain polemic, and then others react to that, and then the other side reacts to that reaction. It just continues, and, and in this, as I've stated, you start to lose the truth when we get into these situations. So the truth of the matter is that is that clearly Jesus, as well as his earliest followers, including Paul, the biblical authors, uh, considered Holy Communion, the Eucharist, to be of extreme importance. And that's why Jesus makes this bold statement in today's reading about eating his flesh. It's why Paul talks about how some have become sick or even died because they approached and took Holy Communion in an unworthy manner. And then from history, we know that many of the Romans thought the early Christians were cannibals because they heard them talking about eating Jesus' body and drinking his blood. So we know the early Christians took this matter uh, quite seriously. But in addition to taking Holy Communion seriously, the early Christians did not separate or distinguish Holy Communion itself from the teaching. So again, the physical bread and the spiritual teaching in the Bible are always linked. So how does this issue of Holy Communion become problematic or controversial? 
Yeah, so, you know, I think that you see this develop uh, with the adoption of Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire. And when that happens, Christianity becomes popular, in fact, so popular that some people convert uh, to Christianity for less than ideal reasons, we might say, including trying to get political appointments since Christianity was favored. And how is that important then to this conversation? Well, many of the church fathers and and leaders during that time still wished uh, at that time to protect the sanctity of communion. They don't want people approaching in an unworthy manner. They don't want them coming to receive communion and not actually caring about Jesus' teaching and, and just doing it you know, for political or social or popular reasons. They see that people start to divorce receiving Holy Communion from following Jesus' teaching, so they stress the importance of the Eucharist. And ironically, what then happens, I believe, is that people start to divorce communion from the teaching even more. They start to see Holy Communion as an end in and of itself. And that's when you start getting people who uh, worship the bread and the wine. They say, well, if it's the body and blood of Christ, then we should worship it. And so again, you get this separation between the Eucharist, the body and blood of Christ, and the teaching. And as I said, these two should never be separated. And so that's why in our Orthodox tradition, although we do keep what we call the reserved sacrament, which is the bread and wine that have previously been consecrated and which we're able to serve to shut-ins or to inmates and others when we cannot uh, do the full divine liturgy with them. So even though we have that and we store it with reverence on the holy table, we do not have the adoration of the Eucharist, the worship of the Eucharist. And in fact, this is the reason, um, you know, the the, uh, practical reason why At the end of every divine liturgy, the priests or the deacons consume whatever of the sacrament, whatever of Holy Communion is remaining. It's because that sacrament was meant for a specific time, a specific place, and for a specific reason. And that time and place and reason is within the context of that entire divine liturgy. And in that divine liturgy, we worship God, we supplicate Him, and importantly, we hear the Word of God, the teaching proclaimed, so that we may learn uh, more about Christ's teaching and the way that we should live our lives. And so let me just conclude then by saying that the norm is that those two, Holy Communion and the teaching, are never separated. You know, there's a few exceptions, like I said, you know, visiting shut-ins or hospitalized, people that are on their deathbed and so forth, but the norm is that the reception of Holy Communion and the teaching of Christ are intimately linked So that means, ideally, we do not separate the Eucharist as something in and of itself to be adored. And on the other hand, we do not ignore the reception of Holy Communion because we decide we're just going to focus on the teaching. The two, from a biblical perspective, are intimately and permanently linked, going clear back to the beginning of the Israelite community as we discussed to the exodus of the Hebrews from Egypt. Thank you, Father. Today's discussion focused on the Eucharist and the Church's understanding of its importance. Father Aaron began by recalling the story of the Exodus, which Jesus refers to in our reading from John 6. From this story, we see the consistent biblical theme of the people not placing their trust in God. And in response, God provides water from a rock and manna that must be eaten daily and not stored, with the exception of the Sabbath. But ultimately, the manna is not what protects and sustains the people in the wilderness. Rather, our eternal protection comes from living by the will of God, by following his teaching. Next, we discuss the theme of bread being linked to the teaching of God. 
We see this in numerous examples throughout the New Testament, all of which point to the fact that the bread is given to the people to sustain them so that they may hear the teaching and live out their lives accordingly. We then discuss the wide-ranging understanding of Holy Communion throughout the Christian world. Clearly, Jesus and his earliest followers considered Holy Communion to be of tremendous importance, and this importance of Holy Communion was inseparably linked to the teaching. However, this view began to change over time and ultimately led to practices such as worship of the bread and wine, while completely separating it from the teaching. But correctly understood and practiced communion and God's teaching accompany one another, nourishing us and providing us with Christ's teaching so that we might have eternal life. Thank you for listening to Teach Me Thy Statutes. We hope you tune in next week for a new episode. Alleluia, glory to thee, O God. Alleluia, 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 glory to thee, O God. O our God and our hope, glory to thee.